Well, good morning. I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the seventh chapter of the book of Matthew. We'll look at uh, Matthew 7, 24 through 27. And I might need Cameron to flip our PowerPoint to send the same one down. There we go. All right, Matthew 7, 24 through 27. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew, and they beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Let's pray again. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word, which you have preserved for us, revealing your Son, the only one who has ever seen you, that we may know you as beloved children. May your spirit illuminate and convict our hearts now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, our theme this morning is the Bible, Can It Be Trusted? And the message title is A House That Won't Fall. All right, so our sub-theme is going to be buildings. Um, we're going to begin our time here together this morning with this word picture that Jesus used of this strong house that's successfully withstanding this storm and the winds and the flood to describe a life of devotion and obedience to him. On the other hand, the rejection of Jesus, characterized by ignoring his words and by disobedience, is pictured as a devastating building collapse. Now, I like buildings and I like construction. I'm fascinated by them. Like many of you who grew up in small towns, I remember my first visit to the city, seeing the skyscrapers of Chicago as, as they came into view. Uh, still many miles out, the tallest one, then known as the Sears Tower, it seemed fairly easy to describe. It was black, it was square, it was tall, had two white towers on the top of it. Well, the closer we drove, the more details came into view. We parked the car, we walked towards the building, and as I stood at the base of the building and looked straight up, all of a sudden it seemed impossible to describe. I mean, it was immense, and I was totally insignificant. We made our way inside, we purchased the tickets to go up to the observation deck, we rode the fastest ear-popping elevator I've ever been on in my life. We exited at the top and then we're treated to this unique, spectacular, 360-degree panoramic view of the, of the city of Chicago. We saw sailboats, the harbor, approaching airplanes, the airports, train stations, parks, you could see it all. Uh, Looking back, it was harder to describe which was more impressive, you know, the, the building itself or the view that it offered. So in a, in a similar fashion, when I was invited several months ago to share on this topic, can the Bible be trusted, I accepted. And at the time, it seemed like a large topic, but, but something doable. But after further study and as I got closer to this day, I just felt like I was standing at the base of the building looking up and saying, I, I can't even begin to describe it. So with that being said, we're barely going to scratch the surface today of the topic, the Word of God. But we're going to do our best, and I want to invite you to look at a book like none other that offers a, a perspective like, like none other. 
So just by way of overview, what we're going to look at today is, uh, first of all, what is the Bible? Then we're going to look at some of the, uh, what we'll call the external evidence for it, some of the archaeology that supports it. Um, what about the process? How did, how did it come to be? What's its internal testimony? What did God think of the Word of God? Which is even a silly thing to, to say. What did Jesus think of it? What did the prophets think of it? What did the apostles say about it? And then what about some questions that we might have? Is it, is it understandable? Is it complete? Is it sufficient? And then finally, what's our response to this? So we'll start with the Bible. Uh, what is it? Well, quite simply put, it's what God, the creator of heaven and earth and all mankind, wanted us to know, the truth. So a couple of verses here from uh, the Gospel of John, uh, John 17, 17. Jesus says, your word is truth. John 18, 37, he said, for this purpose I was born, for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. And then John 8, 31, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So we will say then that the Bible is the truthful revelation of, number one, the character of the invisible God. Number two, the character of the invisible enemy, Satan. And Jeremiah helped us greatly last week in, in looking at some of that. Number three, divine blessing for faith and obedience. Number four, divine judgment for sin and disobedience. Number five, the Lord's Savior and the sacrifice for sin. And finally, number six, the kingdom and the glory of the Lord's Savior. Uh, several weeks ago, I had the opportunity to, to share some of this content with a leadership training group at Redstone. And before the class, I asked the individuals in the class if they would respond to a survey. And the, there were several questions, but one of them was, what things do you find difficult to understand or to accept about the Bible? And secondly, just what topics would you like to learn more about? So here are their responses. Um, in yellow, I put them underneath there because all of their responses fit in one of these categories. So there are questions about what about the love of God? What about the wrath of God? Um, what about predestination and election? Questions about heaven, eternal security, the assurance of salvation. Uh, well, how about hell and earthly suffering, war and violence, LGBTQ issues? Atonement, penal substitution. And finally, what about the prophecies of the end times, those things that are, that are yet to come? So if you have questions, the Bible has answers about all of these. But truth today and even back in the early days was under assault. So let's go back to the beginning, Genesis chapter 2. And verses 15 through 17, we'll take a look at that where it says the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it and the Lord commanded him saying you shall surely eat of every tree in the garden but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat it for in the day that you eat it you shall surely die so in the next chapter we're introduced to Satan who disguises himself as a serpent and he says to the woman did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat 
of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So which is it? You shall surely die or you shall not surely die. Jesus had this to say about the character of Satan in John 8:44. Jesus says, He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar, a liar and the father of lies. So, has anyone seen Adam and Eve around? I mean, they don't live in our neighborhood. Do they, do they live in yours? Uh, have you seen a documentary where they were interviewed? I mean, no, they died, right? as will all of us. I mean, every time we attend a funeral, or for that matter, even go to the doctor's office, we're really kind of confronted with this reality, aren't we, of our own mortality. And at that time, we're also reminded of the truthfulness of God's word, the lies of the evil one, and the accuracy of, of his word as, as it was recorded and preserved for us. So I said we'd look a little bit at the, uh, some of the external evidence, some of the archeology, span uh, we'll look at the internal claims in just a moment, but uh, here for just a moment, we'll look at, um, at the archaeology. So probably most of you have heard of Aristotle or Julius Caesar or Homer's Iliad, and you know we've probably been, been uh, either forced to read those or we look forward to reading those depending on your particular bent. So one of the things, we're not going to look into... Uh, all of this, but this is the process of textual criticism, and we're just going to look at one element of it, and that is of any ancient historical document, how many uh, copies of the manuscripts are there, and how close to the time of, of writing you know, are they? So if we look at Aristotle, the earliest manuscript is probably 1,200 years later after it was written. There's maybe a 1,000 of them. Julius Caesar's Gallic Wars, earliest manuscript, 900 years later, 250 of them. Homer's Iliad, earliest one, 400 years, 1,700 manuscripts. How many manuscripts are there of the New Testament, would you guess? How about 5,000 to 25,000 from, from complete manuscripts to manuscript fragments? And one, one aspect or one uh, fragment of the, the Gospel of John even dates back to about 30 to 50 years from the time that it was written. So the, the manuscript evidence of the New Testament is compelling uh, compared to other ancient historical documents. Well, what about the Old Testament? All right, well, up until 1947, uh, the earliest manuscripts dated back to about 1000 AD. So that sounds quite a bit further from, from when they were written. But then in 1947, there was a discovery known as the Dead Sea Scrolls, where in some caves near the Dead Sea, um, there, were, there was an archaeological discovery found of these scrolls from this Jewish community. It was called Qumran. And these manuscripts dated back to 150 B.C. to 70 A.D. These, these, uh, this Jewish community had preserved these. They, they, they sensed the coming destruction of Jerusalem, and so they hid, hid these caves. The scrolls contained a complete book of Isaiah, fragments of every book of the Old Testament, and when they compared these texts, they don't find any significant variance, anything that affects the meaning, meaningful text. 
So, and just like that, you've got a thousand years of history that was spanned as they go back now to, to that time. And so from archeology, span I think it's safe to say that there is more historical evidence for Jesus Christ than even for Julius Caesar or, or Aristotle. So how did the Bible come to be? Let's look a little bit here at the process of it. And for that, we're gonna to turn to 2 Peter chapter one. 2 Peter 1, verses 19 through 21. And it says here, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And the second key verse will be 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 17, which is also in your, your worship guide. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So let's start with these men who spoke from God. Who were these human authors? So actually there was about 40 men spanning a period of about 1500 years. It starts with Moses in 1405 BC, ends up with the apostle John in about 95 AD. Um, the 39 books of the Old Testament were written in Hebrew, with there's a couple passages in Aramaic. The 27 books of the New Testament were all written in Greek. So between the last prophet, Malachi, and the first New Testament prophet, we'll say John the Baptist, there's about 400 years of silence when there was no prophet speaking the word of the Lord. But in true biblical precision, even the silence was prophesied. Listen to Amos 8.11. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. Now, can you imagine walking into a, uh, an English classroom, a literary classroom, and the professor assigns you this group project? We want you to start writing a book. It's got to take 1,500 years to complete it. You have to use 40 different people involved in the project. Uh, the book needs to be written in at least three different languages, and the story's got to be consistent. It has to be without error, and it has to be timeless so that anybody that ever read it felt like it was written to them. It must portray human nature accurately, that is, the sinful, which is a trait that the human reader is going to resist, and it must be a bestseller thousands of years into the future. That's your assignment. All right. Does anybody have any experience with group projects? How did they go? Yeah, mine too. So let's, let's look at Moses. Um, you know, in the case of Moses, the Old Testament is very descriptive of this process. It, uh, I'll, I'll just read here in Exodus 24. I don't think I had PowerPoint on this one. But it said, to, this is Exodus 24, 12. The Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. Then Exodus 31:18 adds that the tablets were written with the finger of God. 
Exodus 32.15 includes the details that the tablets were written on both sides, front and back. And then verse 16 kind of sums it all up. It says, the tablets were the work of God and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. So could, could it be any clearer than that? So Moses leaves the mountain where things all break down. It says, as Moses left Mount Sinai, he began to see the idolatry of the children of Israel. Specifically, they start worshiping this golden calf that they had talked Aaron into making for them while they were waiting for Moses to come down from the mountain. So Exodus 32, 19 records this. It says, as soon as he, Moses, came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot and he threw the tablets out of his hand and he broke them at the foot of the mountain. I still remember the day that I broke my wife's ornamental glass piano that was on the bookshelf behind me and how I felt about that. And, and I wasn't angry, I was just, just clumsy. So can you imagine for a moment how Moses must have felt when you know, he, he looks down and he sees these tablets on the ground and thinks, now what? <laughs> um, and that was it, right? We never heard from Moses again, never heard about the Israelites anymore. Well, no, I mean, in fact, you can visit Israel today. My airline has daily flights there. How do you, how do you explain that? Well, the explanation is found in the revealed character of God. Listen to this in Exodus 34, 6, the same book that records the prior incident. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Paul, later in Romans 11, he's going to go on to add this explanation about why Israel has been preserved, where he says in 1129, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. So the Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. I don't know if that line was intended to be comical, but to me, it kind of strikes me as funny, probably because I wasn't the guy that broke them. But the, the accuracy and the detail that we find as we really look into the Word of God, to me, is it's just, just fascinating. I'm sure Moses was very mindful of the fact that he had broken them. So these are the tablets then that later they traveled with the children of Israel. They were inside the Ark of the Covenant. The Lord has intended for his word to be heard, for it to be known, for it to be preserved, and for it to be proclaimed. So let's take a look at um, a next. Well, we'll look here. Uh, all scripture is breathed out by God. Uh, 2 Timothy 3.16. So let's look at this Greek phrase here, breathed out by God. That's how it's translated in the English Standard Version. So in Greek, this word here, it's one word, Theopneustos. I hope, my apologies to any, apologies to any Greek speakers in the room. This is a special class of adjectives called verbal adjectives. I put that in for Sam. So if you have any more questions on verbal adjectives, please see Sam. But this is the only place that the word is used in the scriptures. It's, it's a compound of the word theo, which means God, and neo, which means to breathe. So you put it together, God breathe. A com common English term for the doctrine is inspiration, or we say the inspired word of God. Well, that term is fine as long as we remember that the Greek adjective describes the word of God, not the writers, all right? It's God breathing his word out. 
Um, I'll give you an example of that. We'll look at the Apostle Peter here. You'll remember the occasion when um, Peter rebuked the Lord Jesus, who had just predicted his death. When Jesus turns to Peter and he says, get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So in other words, Peter was not always inspired to speak the words of the Lord. However, Peter was carried along by the Holy Spirit to author the book that we have just been studying. The word of the Lord was breathed out. The Holy Spirit superintended the whole process. And Peter wrote using his own personality, his own writing style. So we call that process dual authorship. A human author superintended by the Holy Spirit to state exactly the word of the Lord. Incidentally, this example of Peter and then that prior one about Moses is just another thing that helps me to believe that the Bible was written by God and not by men. So let me ask you this. If you were Peter or Moses, would you have included your colossal failures in, in the book? I mean, that's not the way men write, is it? I, I, did Peter go to Matthew and say, oh, no, you don't, you don't need to put that in there, right? Well, but that's what happened, right? And we have a record of what happened. Why were women witnesses of the resurrection? If you were a Jewish man, you would not have put in there that women were the witnesses of his, the, the first witnesses of his resurrection. So why? Did, well, because that's what happened. And that's the record that we have. Um, there, I found a quote here by, by Lewis Sperry Chafer. He said, the Bible is not such a book man would write if he could or could write if he would. Let's look at another phrase here in the Second Timothy passage in 16, where it talks about all Scripture. All Scripture. Well, a, a, problem, a, a phrase like that becomes kind of problematic. Now, if you want to kind of hang on to the theological teaching of Scripture, but dismiss other parts of it. Let's say, for example, uh, the scientific, the historical parts of it, so that you can embrace uh, biological evolution, for example where we're going to say, no, the world, world wasn't created in six literal days. It happened over millions of years. Um, this, uh, the doctrine, though, of being God-breathed applies to every and to all Scripture. Paul Feinberg, he's now in heaven, but formerly he was a professor at, at Trinity Divin uh, Evangelical Divinity School. He put it like this. There's no distinction between those things that are either Christological, means, meaning pertaining to Christ, salvific, pertaining to salvation, or necessary for faith and practice, and those things that are historical, scientific, or incidental. Uh, a distinction made like that is sometimes called limited inspiration. Martin Lloyd-Jones had, had a further comment on this. He says, the whole Bible comes to us and offers itself to us in exactly the same way and as a whole. There's no hint, there's no suspicion of a suggestion that parts of it are important and parts are not. All come to us in the same form. Another doctrinal term that we'll, we'll define here is the word inerrant. It, it simply just means without error. If you want to state it positively, you, you would say it means wholly true. So we can say that the word of the God who never lies is wholly true. Another observation that, uh, that I was able to see in my study 
was on the precision of, of the biblical grammar. And I'll give you just a few examples of that. We'll look at uh, Matthew 22, 41 through 45. And here, the whole argument that Jesus makes is going to be on the single word Lord. So you can listen to, as I read here, as he, as he claims his deity. It says, now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that time did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Did you ever have that moment in class where you ask a question and you thought, I will never raise my hand again? <laughs> I think that was probably the, 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 the spirit in the room uh, that day. Let's look at another example here where Jesus will demonstrate the truth of the resurrection to a skeptical crowd based on the tense of a verb. All right, the tense here to, to pay attention to is where it will say, I am, not I was. And so we'll read here in uh, Matthew chapter 22, verses 31 through 33. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. One final example on this biblical precision will be in a, a case here where the argument that Paul makes is on the singular rather than the plural version of a word. And so in Galatians 3.16, Paul says this, now the offspring, no, I'm sorry, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. Finally, Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, he affirms that not only are the books of the law of the prophets authoritative, not just the paragraphs and the sentences, not even just the individual words, but even the smallest Hebrew letter called the iota, as well as the dot, which was just a tiny extension of that letter, that these would never pass from the law until all is accomplished. When you look at the Old Testament, over 2,000 times, the Bible claims that God spoke was what was written in its pages. We won't read them all, but we'll look at the first one. And here, just kind of follow along and, and listen. I didn't put them on this screen. But the first one is in uh, Genesis chapter 1, page 1. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God intended his works to be remembered, Psalm 111.4. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. The Lord has exalted his word, Psalm 138.2. I bow down toward your holy temple. I give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. This phrase, the word of God, appears about 40 times in the New Testament. So it's what Jesus preached in Luke 24, 44. He said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms 
must be fulfilled. It was the message the apostles taught, Acts 4.31. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. It was what the Samaritans received in Acts chapter 8. It says, Now when the apostles of Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John. And the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 2.13. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. In 2 Thessalonians 2, the apostles expected the word of God to be obeyed. So they put it like this. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. And we study those letters today. Second Peter chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, where Peter says, This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. So we talked about covering a few questions, and the first one we're going to look at is, is the Bible understandable? Is the Bible understandable? And the answer to that is yes and no. All right, so let's start with the no. And for that, we'll refer here to 2 Corinthians 4, and chapter uh, verses 3 and 4 where Paul says, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. You've probably had that experience where you've shared the gospel and it's just kind of blank, right? It's just, it's not connecting because it has to be a work of the Lord. But... 2 Corinthians 3.16 says, But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. And that process of trans transformation begins. So Jesus said to his followers, uh, this is in Luke 24.45, he says, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, as he explained the parables to those that followed him. And then uh, Luke also records after his resurrection this phrase, when Jesus is gathered with his apostles, he says, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. So that promise of the Holy Spirit went out and they were able to, to understand that, the same Holy Spirit that lives in us as believers today to illuminate that. What about difficult passages? Okay, we understand that some passages are, are difficult. Um, do they challenge our claim that the Bible is inerrant, without error? Well, here again, I was greatly helped uh, by what I had read by, written by Paul Feinberg. So if you'll bear with me here and stick with me, he says, first, we have to make a distinction between the Bible as given and the Bible as interpreted. Though the scriptures as given are completely true, no human interpretation of them is infallible. So something else he said, he says, a key principle in interpretation is what he called the analogy of faith that was taught by the reformers. And this principle just states that we should attempt to harmonize apparently contradictory statements in the Bible. That is, if there is a way of understanding a passage so that it is in harmony with the rest of the scripture, 
And another way of understanding that conflicts with all or even parts of Scripture, then the former is the correct interpretation. Let's talk about, is the New Testament complete? Should we expect more to come? Well, in the, uh, in the early uh, days of the church, the church council met and they, they take these letters that were written by these apostles and they have to determine what, to, for the New Testament, what are we going to consider to be the, the closed canon of the New Testament scripture? So there were three criteria that were generally used. And the one was, was the book authored by an apostle or a close associate? You know, think eyewitnesses, eyewitnesses to what happened. Number two, was the book widely recognized by the church? And the third thing was, was the teaching of the book in conformity to the standards of sound doctrine preached in the churches? A couple key verses on this. Let's look at Ephesians 2, 19 and 20, which says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So there's this emphasis on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ, of course, being the chief cornerstone, but those that were eyewitnesses that traveled with him, that were close associates of those, of those apostles. And then uh, Jude, verse number three, where Jude says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, once for all delivered to the saints. Is the Bible sufficient? Is it enough? Let's look at 2 Peter 1, verses 3 and 4, where Peter says, His divine power has granted to us all things, all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So, if the Bible is in fact the Word of God and not just the Word of man, what, what is our response to that? Well, one appropriate response would be to repent, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and be saved. Um, in Luke chapter 13, Jesus has told us some tragedies that, that, have, that have occurred. One is that some worshipers were slain by Pilate as they worshiped. Another one was a building collapse um, when the Tower of Siloam fell and crushed 18 people. So Luke 13, 1 through 5 says, There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed, killed them, do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So Jesus corrected the faulty thinking of these Jews they thought these people had died prematurely because they were worse sinners. They were worse offenders. Rather, Jesus made the point that everyone's going to die. No one knows when, so you need to be ready. And that's a point that we often forget today. 
Another tower is mentioned in the scriptures that struck me as I was reading this in contrast to the Tower of Siloam that killed people. Proverbs 18, I guess I didn't write this one down. It said, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. Another response to this, and I'll encourage us all, is to be a student of the word. Take 20 minutes a day or longer, have a plan, come up with some way to renew your mind daily in the scriptures. Hide it in your heart so that you won't sin against Christ, as Mike read, read earlier. Um, I, I like maps. I take maps and I take the historical maps and then I'll write the modern cities on them so that I can just picture that and even remember that, that these are real places. These are real places that you can go to today. You can go to Thessaloniki and Corinth and, and all these places, of course, Jerusalem. Um, what, whatever it helps that just helps to, to get you active in that, I would encourage you to do that. Um, learn to discern error, be a Berean. And this is this next passage that I put if you're not familiar with who the Bereans were. This is in Acts 17. It says that the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogues. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So whether you're reading a book or listening to a podcast or listen to a message, examine the scriptures. Where in the Bible does it say this? Um, I also want to recommend a book here. There, there's very scholarly research, of course, on the, um, the, 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 the reliability of the New Testament, the textual criticism. Uh, this is a book called Another Gospel by Elisa Children. She's got a couple chapters in here on the topic. Very readable, very understandable. Um, it helped me greatly, and I, th I think it'll help you as well. Um, lastly, I think the, the, another takeaway would be to have hope, to have hope. And I'll put up uh, Romans 15, 4, where it says, for whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And just in closing, Isaiah 48, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Lord, we, we stand here today looking at your word and in, in some measure feeling like we are making a judgment about it. Lord, when, when we fully recognize that your word makes judgments about us. And Lord, we want to submit ourselves to that. Lord, for those that have never truly responded to, to the Lord Jesus Christ and his call to repentance and to hear his words and to build their life on the rock, I pray that they will do that today, that today is the day of salvation. And Lord, for those of us that have responded, Lord, help us to walk in impurity and obedience to you and in blessing. Lord, that we can share your word with those around us. Thank you for preserving it. Thank you for making it so readily available to us. Protect us from the attacks of the evil one, Lord, who continues to lies, continues to lie 
and to do anything to keep us from filling our mind with your word. I thank you for these moments that we can share together this morning in, in study of it. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll take just a few minutes here like we typically do and, and give you a chance to respond to that. Maybe you have a favorite verse of scripture that encourages you. Sam has a microphone in the back. Maybe you have um, another response, but just to, to give you any opportunity you like before we continue in song. I just want to um, encourage you guys as you're studying scripture, something that I've been learning recently um, through Bible college, and just the more I read the Bible, the more I see this pattern just continued and encourages me to read scripture more and to understand it um, as it was understood in the first century. Um, throughout the New Testament, the Old Testament is quoted, the book of Isaiah, the book of Psalms, and many, many other passages throughout the, the Torah, the first five books of the law. Um, and just seeing that pattern continued, I have been personally seeking in myself to understand and have that same kind of knowledge that the first century people did. And these are not scholarly people. I mean, Peter was a fisherman who was probably barely literate when he met Jesus. He was not, he didn't have the, you know, classical homeschool education that I am blessed to have. He didn't have those tools, um, but I do. And so now I get to have that same kind of love for the Bible and understanding of the Old Testament that Peter did and that Paul did. Paul did have that education, probably better education than I will ever have. <laughs> but I get to have that love for Scripture because I have it in its complete form. I, I also don't have to go to the synagogue and, you know, borrow a scroll or sit, you know, somewhere else. I have the Bible, all 66 books in its completeness, in its entirety, several copies on my bookshelf at home. And so just learning to not neglect that, but also not neglecting um, the Old Testament, to read the Old Testament as the Word of God and understand that it's inspired and it's canonical and it's so important for life and godliness, regardless of whether the New Testament is included or not. It is so much a part of Scripture and seeing how um, the original apostles understood it is so important to understanding the New Testament. The New Testament will not make sense. You won't get the fullness of it, not even close to it, without understanding the Old Testament. Yeah, thank you. Some good comments there. I'm sure Peter, more than anyone, recognized this is the Word of God, not the Word of men. Anyone else have anything they'd like to reflect First, thanks for coming. I can tell how much work you put into that. That was, that was great. Um, so thanks. I'm really excited about this sermon. Um, kind of actually took me off guard a little bit. I mean, I guess I just need to confess, like, I have not been in the Bible the way that I need to. And as I was listening to you to 
preach and speak. I mean, I remember the time in my life when I was far from God, and uh, you know, things came crashing down, and, and I remember that the power of God through his word was the thing that straightened me out. Mm -hmm. This is a great reminder this morning that, that, you know, for those of you who are in the word, great, but for those of you who are not consistently in the word, there's, there's truth in here, and, and we have to be in it because a day is coming or it will come or it has come when this is the only thing that makes sense it is the word of God. Um, it is our truth and it's our beacon. So just a good reminder this morning from you. So thanks for, thanks yeah. for sharing that. Thanks for that challenge too. Yeah. And I'm reminded this morning of the uh, reality of the supernatural nature of all scripture. It's not just a record of, uh, in the Torah, Moses writing down some of the history of Israel and then through the rest of the history books and through the Psalms and the prophets. This is a supernatural book. It's a word from another world. And it was authored and inspired, directed, preserved by God himself. This is, in a tangible way, God with us now. And if we look at these words as stories to remember this happened, then we are not understanding the supernatural intent of what God has brought to us. And it is not just history, it is holy history. It is not just events. This, these are the things that God wanted us to know. You'll read no other history where God is present and those events and the stories of God's intermingling with man become the apparent story. That is what separates the Bible, scripture, from all other writings. They are supernatural in origin, they are supernatural in nature, and they are meant for the nurture of our souls, which have been supernaturally brought to life. Yeah, thank you, thank you. Sam, I come back. Yeah, I wanna... Trying to be fair. <laughs> <laughs> so Tom, I appreciated that uh, you pointed to textual criticism uh, toward the beginning. Because uh, I have quite a few non-believing friends and something that can trip them up uh, just in their own minds is uh, the thought that to be, to trust the Bible, they felt that they would have to rely on circular reasoning. Or, you know, like uh, as a kid, those little NASCAR tracks, you know, that you would set up in just a circle. And so like, you know, thinking of that picture of like a car can only drive on that track if you put it on the track. It, it can't arrive onto that track from any other way other than already being there. And that's kind of, you know, the mentality that uh, people who grew up in the church or didn't grow up in the church, but my currently non-believing friends are like, you, so the, Bi the only way to believe the Bible is true is that it says it's true, but how, what if it's not true, but it says it's true. That, so just this back and forth, but textual criticism shows us this ancient text has merit like it, it's trustworthy as much as 
our historical, any historical writings are. Um, and uh, a lot of what you said actually reminded me of William Lane Craig. I don't know if anyone's familiar with that name, um, but very much so similar uh, thought process. And the thing like it, in Jewish culture, if you wanted something extraordinary and near unbelievable, if you wanted that to be trusted by the culture, you wouldn't rely on the witness of women. Just in Jewish culture, you wouldn't do that. Yet they did, which means either the writers were unintelligent or that's the way it happened. Um, and that's, those are kind of the things that William, Lake, William Lane Craig explains. And um, I, I appreciate you bringing those things up. It's, it it allows, allows us to not just think, to be in that little NASCAR circle where I believe the Bible's true and it says it's true, so it is. It's like, no, there are, science also points to the fact that scripture is trustworthy. Yeah, I think it's safe to say that no ancient document has been more scrutinized than, than the Word of God. Adam, you're up. Yeah, so I kind of was hoping I would go before Brandon because we had the same thing to say. <laughs> I raised my hand like three times saying oh, I saw it. <laughs> thank you. Um, but tracking right along with what Brandon was saying, I think recently I've, I've been pondering, it, it seems that in our culture, and, and maybe this has been um, present for a lot of other cultures throughout history, is either you're educated or you're a Christian. It's this dichotomy that's been presented of either you have to blind yourself to be a Christian or you actually finally take the blinders off and you let go. At least that's the, the climate, especially going through university, going to school. It's okay, you finally get educated and then you realize, okay, these myths, these fables, you can let go of that. Like we believe in science, we believe in education now. But in all reality, as I've grown in my study of God's word, uh, in growing in faith, there is more evidence, more support, even from, the, from a very academic side, to support what we believe. And, and this doctrine is so important because if we don't have a consistent truth to keep coming back to, and if we leave it up to man to just each of us to find our own way, then we'll be everywhere. We'll be scattered. There's no um, founding thing to keep coming back to. But we have this truth to come to. It has tons of academic support more than any other ancient, ancient text does. And, and being someone who graduated with a history major and appreciating that, we read and we study these old texts and that, you know, they're presented as you know, so solid and firm. But they have only got a handful of like copies of them. And I'm not saying that makes them not solid. I'm just saying we stand on these historical academic truths with just a handful of evidence. But then when you bring the Bible into the conversation, you're thrown out as, okay, come on, you're really going to bring that in? And it's like, no, even on the academic scale, bringing in the Bible outweighs any other text, any other historical document, any other historical anything that we have to present as truth on a historical scale. And then obviously, if it is that um, preserved, then what is it saying? Maybe it really does have merit on the theological and on the spiritual scale, which it does. So... Anyways, I just think that sometimes, I like, I like how you finished with be hopeful because it's easy to be like, golly, people are going to think I'm, if people know I'm a Christian and I start bringing up the Bible, then they're immediately like, you have this blind faith. You just blind yourself and jump off into these things. But Christians, more than anybody, our, our faith isn't blind. Yes, we're stepping into faith, but it's an educated faith. Like We know there's something there. We have truth to back it up. And 
I think that's very hopeful and very encouraging. Yeah, thank you. Right behind you there, Sam. I just wanted to add something. Um, this is so enlightening. I appreciate this so much. But it's uh, for young people to understand that a lot of the grew up in the church, weren't encouraged to study the word. Um, I has, my husband grew up Catholic and you didn't study the Bible at all. Uh, you just listened and believed whatever you were told. Um, I grew up Southern Baptist, but also it was more like you believed what you were told and you didn't question anything. So to go beyond what we were told within the church not that all the doctrine was wrong or anything like that, but to be able to dive in and to read and to study and to understand and know the history. Um, it's so great for, I think today is so encouraged in um, a lot of Bible-believing churches. And that opportunity, I don't think, lent itself to past generations as much. So to hear this young man speak about going to university and to speak about so many young people walk away from the Bible at that point because they don't see the truth, but the opportunities there to really study and read and to understand the history. So I appreciate you so much for what you've shared today. It really yeah. just was enlightening to me too. Yeah, good, thank you. Can I steal a little bit of additive? information there about uh, I'm in a Bible study with a bunch of guys and we've gone through all the Bible books it seems and lately talk about history and education we did a study on the prophets and, and, and what they said and what came about and talk about being right on confirmation it was like one of the best things we've ever done. Uh, I don't know if you ever studied prophets, and there's just so much history that's confirmed through the prophets. Yeah. Hello? Hey, um, thanks, Tom. So I was just gonna say too, you know, you spoke about truth from an empirical perspective, you know, how can it be measured? How can we look at the word of God and say, okay, well, that seems to make sense from a tense perspective. We start looking at the structure and then how much it's been scrutinized, but it doesn't even bring to bear the personal conviction, both for those who believe and who, who God has lifted the veil from their eyes. And then those who read the word and, and feel it speaking directly to them and are left with a choice at that point. Mm -hmm. Do I choose to obey what I read or do I not like that? And I think there's so much testimony, even in that personal experience, that doesn't even begin to speak of the, of the historical context of the Bible and what we know to be true or what we continue to proof out. So I think that's maybe even the other component. This was all fantastic and really stirs my heart, but it's God on a personal level in that book that says, You're, I created you and I require this of you. And you can choose at that point to believe the truth that's been presented to you or not. And I think that's the moment for me, regardless of all the words that have been written, where God says, I know you, I made you, I've known every day of your life, and this is truth I'm presenting to you. And then I have a moment where I can say, I believe that truth based on what you've said to me, Lord, or I choose not to, for, for whatever the escape path is from that. Yeah, so. good, thank you.
Let's enter into a time of worship to wrap it up. Thank you.